Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the BSF Lecture Talk on the Gospel of John. I'm Abraham Lee, the teaching leader for the San Francisco region, and today we're studying John chapter 11 in Lesson 15, where we ponder an important doctrinal concept in Christianity on the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection power of Jesus, demonstrated in the life of Lazarus of Bethany. You know, people struggle with the fear and anxiety over dying. They're really anxious about it. Even in our day, you know, just over the pandemic, uh, people have been struggling with uh, seeing so many of their relatives and, and friends pass away. Some people push away the thought of their own death and, and try not to think about it. And others, um, especially those who are struggling with uh, suicidal thoughts, you know, see it as the only way out of a miserable situation. And then there are those who, uh, seeing that their life is temporal, try to prepare for it in some very odd and comical ways. Uh, perhaps you might have heard of a man who commanded his family to bury him in all of his favorite material possessions. Maybe you might have heard of that. Um, I heard of this when I was growing up. A man who asked his family to bury him in his Royce, Rolls Royce, wearing his luxury suit and shoes, with his Rolex watch on his wrist and accompanied by some of his most favorite toys all along his casket. And this may sound funny to us, but remember that the kings and rulers of the past went so far in more elaborate ways to try to take their wealth and possessions with them to the afterlife. Um, people bury themselves with a lot of stuff. You know, a lot of that stuff is garbage worthless things in this life that we cannot take with us. I mean, we're born into this world naked. My pastor used to say, hey, you're born into the world naked and you're going to leave it naked. And the only thing that you can take with you are other people. You can only take other people with you by sharing the gospel of salvation. Everyone dies. And many people think we just disappear. And we, you know, in our culture, try to sanitize death. Video games and movies make the death of someone look like a non-event, something that we could just kind of skip over. But death is a scary, serious thing, a fact of life, and no one on earth has ever been able to say anything definitive about what death is, what lies beyond it, how to prepare for it, or even how to avoid it until Jesus arrived. Everyone was guessing until Jesus came. And that is, um, everything that we thought about death is not what the Bible ever taught. Jesus says we are created with a special eternal purpose. Mankind was created to worship God and to enjoy Him forever. God saw us so precious to Himself that He gave His only Son to rescue us from our eternal condemnation and sin. You know, in the ways in which we thought we were doomed, Jesus continued to elaborate that he came to rescue us from our doom, to fulfill the eternal promises of God who had said that he would send a Messiah, an anointed Savior and King, who he had promised from the beginning of time, the Son of God, the Son of Man, as prophesied in Daniel 7, the Deliverer who would save us from our sins, as foretold in Isaiah. He keeps pointing to many different, ever-increasing and elaborate descriptions about what God has intended in the Savior so that we would not misunderstand the Savior that He had promised to send to save us. So this week we learn about Yeshua, Jesus, and who He is as the Lord of life and the sovereign God over death. He says that He is the resurrection and the life. 
You know, I spoke of death, uh, but Bible speaks of death in much broader terms. It's not just something that happens to it as the end of life, uh, when our life in the spirit is snuffed out of this body, but uh, the Bible talks about the death of our spirits and how it infects our lives um, in a broader sense, uh, infects our life without God. And when God said by sin that we would die, that we would surely die, and that's what he said to Adam, uh, this death now kind of stains and permeates all of our lives, throughout our life, until we come to God. So that life can feel like being buried alive. And there are days when I get swamped, you know, and I'm sure you feel the same way. There are many times in life when I feel like the walls of life's demands and hardships are crumbling in around me. And it feels like you're being buried alive. The forces of darkness seem to bury me in. And being buried alive is scary. I, I realized in my adult years that with age, my own body also continues to remind me that I'm very fragile and temporal, being in this flesh. So that not only are there forces outside of me seeking to bury me, there are forces within me and the body that I inhabit that reminds me we are all walking on a road that leads to the grave. And I know it's, it's morbid to talk about this. And I know it's very unpleasant, but it is a fact of human life. It's a sobering thought, but this is where I realize how important Jesus' teaching about redemption and resurrection really is, how significant and on point it is to the concerns uh, that should be on the forefront of our minds, like what is life about and what lies beyond life? And how important the resurrection is as a doctrine to our understanding of God as our Savior. You know, he calls himself by the name, the action by which he delivers us. A God who loves us so much that he wants us to know him by this word, Savior, the one who saves. And the one who saves us from death by his resurrection. In the Greek, resurrection is called anastasis. That's where we get the girl's name Anastasia from. God says he is the Anastasis, that God is the victory cry for us over death. God is calling us from destiny toward the grave to a destiny toward eternal life in Jesus. But before I go on about that, and as I talk more about Lazarus, let me share some announcements as we look over the outline for this week as well. One announcement is that this coming week, um, is our fellowship week again and it's yes it's already time to fellowship again and to have that face-to-face -face encounter with your members please try to use this time creatively engaged in some form of social kind of mingling and getting to know each other in a, in a deeper sense personally that could mean taking a hike together maybe go on a trip go on a hike uh, go to a a cafe and just do a, a, a powwow what we do in our group is to do a potluck and that seems to be a favorite thing that people want to do before our study so we come earlier at six and have an hour um, of sharing a dinner together but whatever you might decide it does not have to be on your study day so use your creativity and and try to delegate that responsibility of planning uh, that fellowship time to the members of the group so that maybe a small group of you can take turns organizing that for the benefit of everybody else yeah just let's share the load and take ownership of our fellowship and not have the leader kind of take the reins of this over and over again at, at every fellowship time that will do him a great uh, deal of uh, service and love show him some love 
All right. And another thing I want to share, some people have been asking, are there some things coming up that might be um, useful as a retreat or get away from the rigors of life? And there are. Uh, there's Mount Hermon Retreat Conference Center uh, down in Santa Cruz that's hosting an all-comers conference February 16th to the 19th for those 45 years of age or older. That's on their website here. You can see Mount Hermon's website all comers event. And then the second one is a men's retreat coming up in the spring, April 19 to 21. These things sell out so quickly. So I, I'm sharing this with you in advance because uh, they're drawing from men all over Northern California, as far south as San Luis Obispo and the highly popular. I, I went and I've always been blessed by uh, meeting up with uh, fellow believers from all around um, the northern part of the state. So if you want to join in, check them out, missionsprings.com uh, under men's conference. But going to our outline for this week, the aim is to understand Jesus' resurrection power, which overcomes death. And the doctrine that we're looking at is the, the understanding of resurrection power of God. His attribute is that he's omnipotent, and that includes over our death. And the big idea is that Jesus' resurrection power conquers death. The three divisions from this lesson chapter is that, one, Jesus learns of, not learns so much as he is now receiving news of Lazarus's illness, but purposely delays seeing him. That's John 1 through 16. Um, I, I forgot to change that word, learn. Jesus doesn't really learn anything as much as he receives it, and then he takes that time to address it for our good so that we learn, we learn <laughs> to grow into understanding who he is. And the word glory actually means, in reference to God, that more and more aspects of God is being manifested, taught, and made known to us in the fullness of who he is. The second part of the division is that Jesus challenges Mary and Martha's faith, and he raises Lazarus from the dead. And the third is that Caiaphas and the high priests with the Pharisees initiate a plot to murder Jesus, verses 45 to 57. The applications that we'll be thinking about is when has a delayed answer to prayer stretched your faith or helped force you to grow? Uh, how has that proved God's faithfulness in your life as you encountered him in a very difficult time? And two, what evidence do you see of Christ's resurrection life working within you? And three, how have you seen God uh, accomplish his purposes even when people oppose him in some ways to deny him, uh, ridicule him? ridicule his word. And the principles that we're going to look at is that desperate circumstances provide opportunities to strengthen our faith and reveal God's glory. Two, only Jesus gives new life to dead souls, dead hearts. And then three, God ultimately overrules everyone and everything that tries to oppose him and his purposes. So a question uh, my students sometimes ask me is, so how does this change my life? What is the resurrection about it? And young people um, are so early in their lives, uh, unfamiliar with death and how the body wears down, often ask about this, right? They're not, death is so far away from their life cycle that it doesn't even seem real. Well, the resurrection doesn't mean that we just go about living the mundane lives that we have in the same ways that we had before knowing Christ. The resurrection extends the parameters of how we think about our lives into eternity as eternal servants of God. So we're not just living by a human life cycle as other people do. We're, we're just kind of looking at birth, going through our youth, uh, finish college, get married, have 2.5 kids, raise our own families, go through a midlife career push, get promoted, uh, advance, and then pay off huge life debt and, and then enter retirement and just enjoy ourselves, right? Enter an old age vacationing and lounging around until we die. <laughs> that is not the way that the Bible teaches resurrection. 
the Christian who understands the resurrection understands that life doesn't end here, but it continues now in and through Christ. It extends powerfully into our participation into his kingdom. And that changes everything up in the front half of our lives when we're thinking about how we're preparing ourselves by the Holy Spirit into the kingdom to come, into eternity as appointed stewards of God's purposes in his kingdom. That means that we're never thinking of life as kind of this uh, moving toward a point of hanging up our hats and jackets somewhere and moving toward the grave or this American idea that we've earned our right to enjoy ourselves. So enjoying ourselves in the postponed activities of indulgence and leisure, that is not what the Bible teaches. And by the way, did you know that the vast majority of the nations of the world don't believe in our idea of retirement as the West does? You know, I, I've been to so many countries. I've traveled to actually over 40 different countries uh, as a uh, missionary faculty member of a university. And those cultures I visited, the elderly keep working well past 65 years of age. And when I've asked them why they do, they say it's not because of the money. They say if they stop, they'll lose their health. They'll lose their mental and physical faculties from disuse. They've got to keep themselves busy and productive and thinking and being involved in the world around them. And so I, I think that's a very healthy idea. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful idea. Uh, and it's it's always giving into the lives of others. So, you know, Christ's resurrection makes all things in this life merely a beginning point for a kingdom to come, for more advanced progressive richness that God is uh, preparing for you that's awaiting you in the life to come. What you are only beginning to practice and live into here um, is being perfected. And so you'll continue to live and practice into God's perfect law of love in the kingdom of Christ. In, among his people in the ages to come that we have to kind of be more cognizant of and be more discerning about when we're thinking about our lives against the truth of God's word. You know, we keep observing and being eager to learn in God's um, training and God's discipleship we keep, for that kingdom. We keep filling our kind of mental notebooks, knowing that there is much more to fathom and uncover from God's rich revealing and revelation of himself and his plans. In the resurrection, we hold the things of this world lightly because unlike you as an eternal spirit, the things of this world will pass away. It will pass away with the using. In fact, much of the world is opposed to the things of God and will serve no purpose in his kingdom. We hold the things of God tightly. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And God's design, God's logic, God's plan for human history, these things will not be trashed. God gives himself, his own life for us. So we who imbibe his word are an important part in his cosmic purposes forever. So with these thoughts in mind, let's move on to the questions and I'll, I'll go into some of the other principles uh, that we're looking at. Question 3a asks from verses 1 through 5, get details about Mary, Martha, and Lazarus and their relationship with Jesus. So this is an interesting um, close relationship of single people right? Uh, they're in relationship with Jesus, who's also single, very close relationship with ones that Jesus loved. There are some things that we can infer about Mary, uh, Martha, and Lazarus. They were probably around the same age as Jesus in their early 30s or even 20s, late 20s. They appear to have lived together and the parents were already deceased. And that, that was not uncommon in those days when people died from many diseases. We see Jesus healing people of all over the place that he went to to minister or from you know, work-related accidents. There was no such thing as hospitals and medical insurance. So when one was at the risk of losing their lives, death was a serious consideration for everybody. It was just an everyday fact of life, right? 
and people have to be very careful about every threat to life and limb. So we also get an indication about their uh, birth order from verse 5, where it says, Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So in ancient times, uh, men's names were recorded first, but in this case, we see that Martha's first. Then it doesn't even mention Mary's name, uh, but Lazarus is mentioned last. Even as the youngest sibling, um, as a man, Lazarus, his role as the male representative of this parentless household would have played an outside role in social customs and public affairs at the time. So Lazarus, uh, his name is significant also that in, it's the Greek form of the Hebrew name Eleazar, which means God has helped or God is my help. Eleazar, as you might recall from uh, Bible knowledge, he's the second high priest uh, anointed after Aaron, one of Aaron's sons who faithfully oversaw Israel's entering into the promised land. He commissioned Joshua as the successor to Moses, and that's found in Numbers 27, chapter 27. So in some ways, uh, Lazarus, it's significant that um, he is participating in the ushering of us into the kingdom of God, uh, the promised land, per se, through Christ. And so, I don't know, you might draw a link there as well. So these are three young siblings who had an intimate relationship with Jesus, our Savior, our Messiah, and perhaps hosted him whenever Jesus came to stay in the area of Jerusalem. When Lazarus died, it, this, his death put the family in greater social peril so, because they didn't have a male representative anymore, and the two women would have to fend for themselves economically and socially. Uh, you can get a sense of their feeling of despair by uh, th this passage. But Jesus had a powerful purpose for even the most difficult circumstances that these siblings faced. And, and as we experience, right, this is the nature of our God. This is the nature of Jesus who loves us and is the faithful shepherd of our souls. You might wonder um, why you live under circumstances that you do, uh, which you have no control over. Uh, and it is by faithfulness and trust that God uses those times when you feel uh, under duress, that God will glorify his name through you and through me if we continue to believe and have faith and wait on the Lord. I've just experienced that personally in my own life. When things didn't make sense and beyond the time frame that I thought something had to get done, God had to arrive right now to help me at this time because beyond it would have been too late. I realized that actually God has a much greater uh, perfect sense of timing than I do. And by it, I've grown in my faith when I've trusted him and saw him uh, work through what I saw as limitations, but he doesn't have those. His timing is perfect and his help is definite and assured. As another BSF teacher taught recently, it's in the delays that God teaches us to trust his loving heart. And, and the theory that we're thinking about God translates into a personal and um, deep confidence in God in our hearts. So when Jesus doesn't answer our prayer in the ways that we want, he's doing something greater than we can comprehend at the time. So friends, some answers to prayer are best understood in the rear view mirror of life so that we can, in hindsight, so we can always trust that God uses even death to bring himself glory and God's glory is always for our good. Part B asks, why did Jesus say Lazarus' sickness would not end in death but was for God's glory? Well, this question is an important reminder of John's primary thesis or message, right? Jesus is God's son. That's what he tells us in chapter one. He's the word of God in the flesh. And two, Jesus is the only one who can reveal God's glory, God's nature, God's attributes, the person of God perfectly. Remember what glory means, uh, right? When we speak of God's glory, we're talking about the, the constant unpacking and ex extrapolation and revealing and description 
uh, and the, the, the multifaceted ways in which we can understand the wonderment of God's nature, his attributes, which we are presently through our lives and through human history only getting to know uh, in, in the very smallest amount, but in, in, a, in the most essential ways. God's glory reveals his divine holiness, his majesty, his awesomeness. Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 tells us that God sent Jesus to make himself and his glory known to humanity. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. When Jesus unveils God's glory, we recognize Jesus' uh, way of telling us about God uh, in the best and truest way uh, that there ever was to describe God. Uh, the, the true God who was and is and always shall be is reflected in Jesus, who is God's heart represented in human flesh. There is no one else like him in all of the earth and all human history. Jesus, at this point in time, now chooses Lazarus and his dear uh, friends, uh, Lazarus' siblings, as a central backdrop for the glory of God to be revealed in yet a different way. And this time, it was one of the most important revelations that Christ has power over death. He is the resurrection and the life. The resurrection was a foreshadow uh, of his divine re resurrection from the grave and the call for all humanity to accept the eternal, abundant, and beautiful, sinless life that he sought to give us. Part C asks, how could a sudden crisis or long struggle you face bring glory or honor to God? Well, you know, we all go through difficult times, but it's in the times when we're desperate and we're, we're at the end of our rope that God shows up in ways that uh, we sometimes kind of short circuit or are unable to experience because we try to solve things our own way or force things to be solved. When we are at the end of our human resources, when all things have failed and the day is all done, as that uh, hymn, He Gives More Grace, tells us, right? Uh, his love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known to men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he'll give and he'll provide and he'll be there with us again and again. And that's a promise uh, directly from scripture that he'll never leave us. He's the perfect shepherd of our souls. And so moving on, uh, question six, how might you explain Thomas's reaction in verse 16, where he says, let us go that we may die with him. He's kind of nihilistic, <laughs> has so little faith. Um, but he represent, Thomas represents all of us. He doesn't have the right view of who Jesus was. Jesus was still, uh, to the disciples, more human than divine. So he, he's a man who could be targeted by henchmen, attacked and cornered by detractors, and someone who could be assassinated and had no control over his life. And Jesus has already told them that no man could take his life, right? In the previous chapter, chapter 10, we learned last week, he said he lays his life down of his own accord. And, and he has the authority to give his life and take it up again from the Father. That's John 10, 17 to 18. So he knew they needed greater faith. Uh, the disciples, they are just dragging their faith. They need a fresh revelation. And that's why he said, let's go back. They needed to see God's glory. And also, this is a time a few days over from, and, and from the Passover where Jesus will be going to the cross. So things are building up to where all these uh, revelations of God are now helping us to see what God's perfect Lamb of God will do for us in his atonement to give us life. But this lack of clarity is why Jesus speaks about 12 hours of the day uh, right after this encounter with Tom Thomas, his doubt. There are periods of clarity when light will illuminate truth so that we can walk with confidence and boldness 
in the conviction of her faith. So when Jesus is, is there to explain and to show us his glory, it's like, you know, we're living in the daylight. His disciples would stumble if they were not walking always in the light of Christ. So he calls all of us to live boldly by the truth of his divine light, of his identity, of his salvation, and of, us, of his resurrection. If we do not live in the light, we're walking in darkness, even as we theoretically know the right answers, but never let the truth come to live and to uh, live practically and enlighten our heart and our soul. You know as well as I do that uh, a person could be brought up in a religious environment and have heard the right things, but still be in darkness and be headed for a major fall. And Judas Iscariot is an example of this. He lived with Jesus, but the truth of God's word never went to his heart. 1 John 1 verses 6 and 7 says that if we have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. So moving on to the third day, 7a, describe the steps through which Martha's faith progressed as Jesus led her from one promise to the next. You know, this is an important question. Martha is very much Martha here, <laughs> yet again. When she heard that Jesus was on his way, Jesus, she ran out to meet him on the road and, and she basically said, wait, what took you so long? We called on you four days ago. That's my own paraphrasing. Uh, but she says something here that gives something away. She says it's too late, but then in verse 22, she says, But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus says in reply, Your brother will rise again. But she doubts this. She doubts her own words that Jesus can raise Lazarus from the dead. We learn so much about ourselves through our dear Martha, right? Martha says one thing where she professes faith, but in reality, she doesn't know what to believe. She, she doesn't know how that Jesus is the Lord of life and the Lord of everything, uh, the Lord of universe, and the one who's given her the life that she has. So we get a sense of the pervasive, incomplete faith that so many followers of Jesus had. They had seen and heard of his miracles and his deeds, his teaching, his promises. But even Jesus' disciples and closest friends were unfamiliar with how to believe in Jesus completely, completely and implicitly. Like Martha, we often can spout Sunday school answers for questions about faith and salvation. But when it comes to really living it out, to the nitty-gritty aspects of it, living it out faithfully, we fail. There's a major disconnect somewhere. We say things uh, we can't live by. And this is what Jesus keeps saying is a subtle but real hypocrisy and fakery in so many people's lives, especially the Pharisees. Uh, it is evidence of a deeply ingrained disbelief. So we believe some parts and we disbelieve others. And we can't do that when we're observing the totality of who Jesus is in his entire self. They see Jesus in the flesh, quite human like themselves, looking very ordinary in every way as we are but extraordinary beyond measure in ways beyond what our eyes and ears can convince us of sometimes. And this is the problem. Their difficulty to receive Jesus as God is not too different from our lack of understanding. Some of us has be have become so used to seeing Jesus through the lens of cultural and religious upbringing or maybe just secondhand information from our pastors. We have a hard time moving beyond uh, this kind of construct and framework of uh, mishmash of kind of very frail um, constructions, right? Paradigms that we've inherited and we've gotten accustomed to. If you remember the story of Jacob's life, you remember Jacob in the old story, Old Testament? 
he's running, uh, it's a running theme in his life that God continues to work on to expand the great promises that began with his fathers, Abraham and Isaac. Because he's starting off with a very incomplete, very, very uh, small faith. I mean, it's a faith that he has not, he wants a blessing, but he doesn't understand what this all entails. But while he's sleeping on his running away from home, he sees the heavens open and the breach between heaven and earth becomes bridged by a kind of ladder or stairway to heaven. Jesus is Jacob's vision of that bridge between heaven and earth. And here Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 1, if you remember, John 1, 51, that if they would believe, believe him, they would see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on himself, on the Son of Man. Jesus is the only way to the truth and life that comes from the Father, John 14, 6, where he says he is the only way, the truth, and the life. He has the power and authority to raise the dead here, and he has the power and authority to give eternal life, giving all believing people hope beyond the grave. So Jesus teaches us an important uh, truth here. In statement, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And, he, and then he says, do you believe this? And this is a focal point uh, at the heart of, of Mary uh, and Martha's problem. Do they believe this? Will they go beyond the limits of their faith as it stands at that time and, and as it stands where we are? Jesus is saying death doesn't have the final word that he does. So every person must answer this question for themselves. Who do you believe Jesus is? Do you believe Jesus to be the resurrection and life? How does your everyday life reflect this belief? Martha believed in the resurrection at the last day, but she didn't understand that Jesus is the Lord of her life. Her response to Jesus in verse 27 is a textbook answer, right? And, and we don't want to be in that position where we have textbook answer, but our heart is not really in it. She doesn't really understand what it means that Jesus is resurrection and the life. She runs to Mary, perhaps thinking maybe the adorable younger sister might get a, a better response out of Jesus. And she tells Mary that Jesus is looking for her when Jesus was not looking for her at all. And even when Jesus tells them to take away the stone, Martha says, ironically, but Lord, by this time there is a bad smell for he has been there four days. You know, at every point, Martha's setting up obstacles from her, her kind of limited uh, understanding of who Jesus is. And Jesus replies, did I not tell you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? A glory that defies our puny minds, our best explanations, our limited human logic is what Jesus is trying to do here. A glory that's unimaginable and unfathomable, that reveals a reality that's much, much bigger than we ever thought possible in, in the puny ways we think about God. So we keep locking God in with what we think are brilliant observations. Oh, it's going to smell. Thinking that we know better than Jesus. But thankfully, God is greatly patient with us with us at each time and at each point. You know, if it was me, I would just throw up my hands and have left uh, such persistent lack of trust and faith. Uh, you know how it feels when people uh, distrust you or, or disown you or um, maybe say things that are not true about you. This is what's been going on against Jesus time and again. And this is the thing with, with God is that we can say, forget you, God, but Jesus will never forget us. He keeps calling and beckoning the lost to believe in him, to believe on him. And now in raising Lazarus, Jesus also hints at his own resurrection from the dead when he uh, would fulfill his purpose and complete God's plan to redeem humanity from sin. But when Jesus arose, unlike Lazarus who would die again and be raised at the last day, Jesus would not die. He would never die, but would be living eternally, eternity as our Messiah and as our King. So here's our first principle. 
As God and Lord of life and resurrection, Jesus' resurrection power gives every believer victory over sin. Jesus' power gives believers victory over all death by his own death and sacrifice on the cross. Jesus said, in this life you'll have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. And as one of our leaders pointed out, trouble is our reality, but victory is our destiny in Jesus. So what are you facing today that God might want to use to bring himself glory? Are you waiting on Jesus and patiently seeing what God will do despite the deadlines and timelines that you've set up for him? Is Jesus delayed? Will you trust that his purpose isn't just to save lives, but that it's to save souls and will give and prepare believers a much larger view of God and our eternal future with himself? 9a asks, why was Jesus deeply moved in spirit and troubled as he spoke with Mary and arrived at the tomb? Well, it, it, that's, uh, it says Jesus wept, and it's one of the smallest, shortest verses in the Bible. The only other place where we find Jesus uh, being described as weeping is Luke 19.41, where he predicts the fall of Jerusalem, saying they will not, uh, the Romans would not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Again, God, who is Emmanuel, tells us that he is God and that he is with us, and he's mourning with our faithlessness. So why does Jesus weep in both cases? Well, I believe it was over the gravity of our unbelief in the face of death, right? And he saw us as lost sheep without a shepherd, false shepherds of the Pharisees and the religious rulers and other people who just, they themselves had no relationship with God. And all of this prevented us from receiving Jesus who loved us so much. He was at the very moment and instant seeking to give of himself, and yet we refused him. And all of this disbelief caved in on grief in his heart as he saw us kind of crowding and huddled, naked, bruised, battered and broken and living in dark shadows. And I feel like, you know, this condition of disbelief and separation from God is symbolized by the tragic condition of, uh, in San Francisco, drug addicts wallowing on the streets. It's like, you know, the, the life realities of this is pointing to the spiritual realities of, our, uh, of, of the lost. These very human problems are a prophetic message to a spiritual reality that points to our position before God. And Jesus is weeping for us. And we're often too busy trying to enjoy the little times that we have in this world to shoot up or enjoy the carnality of this life. We don't really care to listen to him. So if your faith is weak or so small as you wonder how to increase increase it any further, well, we have to desperately depend on God for that. So pray to the Father to help you move further and deeper into an authentic faith and relationship with Him. A faith that truly has the capacity to receive the enlargement of things that God wants to show you of Himself and do in, it, in your life. Now in verse 12, the final question, what were the different reactions and responses to Jesus' miracle among those who witnessed or heard of it? In the final section, we see that the gospel and the revelation of the glory of God will always have you know, two different responses. There'll be believers and unbelievers, unbelievers who are deniers and deriders. The believers will keep progressing forward to a truer understanding as they worship God in spirit and in truth, while the unbelievers will progressively dedicate their lives to becoming obstacles to God, to ridiculing, deriding, rejecting, refuting, and denying everything about Jesus and his words. And we, we see that all around us. But here we see that even in unbelief, God is gracious to make the truth prophetically spoken through Caiaphas, the high priest. And it's revealed even as people who speak and they're against God, the truth is revealed through their lips despite what uh, <laughs> objections they have against God. Uh, you might have seen this happen in, in real life. I, I some, certainly do. Where the goodness of God leads stubborn people uh, to repentance, right? By their own words. Uh, 
as told in Romans 2 verse 4, uh, it says, Do you despise the riches of God's goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? So here Caiaphas and the chief priests and Pharisees are plotting Jesus' death and at the same time speaking prophetic words of what Jesus is going to do to bless us, eternally bless us, bring us to God. That the people listening, you know, in on what he's saying will themselves realize the very things condemning their foolish rejection is actually a testimony to anyone who sees that the same sins are being replicated in their own hearts. I'm saying they're speaking the truth even as they don't even realize it and it's blessing the people who's listening even though they themselves are meaning it for, our, for ill. So there are echoes of judgment and salvation ringing into people's lives that we do not adequately know by which they are being led to startling awakening and that so that they can cry out to God for deliverance. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. You use all things to bring people to an awareness of who you are and your great salvation. So, Lord, we confess. To who can we go? You are the resurrection and the life. You have the words of life. We thank you, Lord, and we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You call my name and I raise